All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, what are we going to be talking about? We're talking about North Africa, personal discovery, making large life choices about um, what cosmic alignments you are choosing for yourself. Dang. Yeah. Stick around. Woohoo! Welcome back. We are really chugging through to the end of the House of Hades. Today, Carter and I are recording from the same room. So if things are sounding a little bit worse than usual, it's because I can't cut out when we interrupt each other or the sound of us slurping tea. (laughs) It's really good tea. I made us some tea. um, And we've got Robert uh, zooming in with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, it's me. Oh, oh, geez, that's me. <laughs> hey, all coming to you live from New York City. E. That's on coastal elitism. Um, it feels different. It feels like maybe it's not a podcast, but instead we were on like a morning show or something. It's because we're si- it's because we're sitting next to each other, sipping on a couch tea and like speaking and into a lens while also glancing back at each other. each other. It's like our a Zoom morning show. Yeah. <laughs> Is there uh, anything you want to update the the listeners about, Robert? I have been thinking about this. This is actually the first episode I've been on by myself. <laughs> yeah, so the last, the first time was that big collaboration at the end of Last yep. Olympian. Yes. Last time was with Brayden. I, I believe you asked your right. guests a specific set of oh. questions. Oh! Oh my god, wait, have you not, have you not had the questions? questions? Never, I've never gotten those questions. Well, okay, oh we can gosh. do that. We can absolutely do that. Well, that's so sweet. Okay, great. It's weird because we have been all alone on a call together, but that was when we did that, like, Instagram live spontaneously. All right. Not you guys putting Robert last joined us informally in the notes. Robert last joined us informally on our Demigod Diaries live for anyone who was there. And we've also been doing a Once Upon a Time show together. Y'all should check it out. That's the formal note cue. Um, all <laughs> so, true. Robert, my first question for you is, when did you get into these books the first time? Definitely. When I was about 12 years old, my mom gave me and my sister some money. She's like, go to Barnes and Nobles, buy some books. I don't want you kids Mm -hmm. just like sitting in front of the TV all summer. And (laughs) one of the books we got was Percy Jackson, The Lightning Thief. And we burned through that book in like a day. And that's how it started. Aww, moms encouraging literacy. We also got The Little Prince and that was not a good experience. Oh, really? It, it was sad. That's 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 what I okay. meant. Fantastic book, just very sad. I've never once engaged with the Little Prince. It's very French. I which guess we that's all know why. how we feel about that. But um, <laughs> independent <laughs> of that, you know, they made some points. Something, something. The rose in space. <laughs> Robert, and and when you were reading this book, when you guys first read and tore through the Lightning Thief, how did you pronounce the name of the centaur? The centaur mentor. Centaur mentor. The centaur mentor. I. Th- think i know definitely when i was a little kid i didn't know how to pronounce it i said like chiron like the t chiron to chiron like yeah t-c-h like chiron Chiron, yeah like that's definitely okay i I didn't learn about the chiron pronunciation until like maybe college fair enough very valid that was my first pronunciation too i don't know how hard i popped it but you know (laughs) with or without t um (laughs) All right. And then sort of the last question would be, if you want to share, who's your demigod parent and or what is your like Ryordan verse species? Affiliation. Affiliation. That's the word I was looking for. I don't know. I've definitely been saying my my godly parent is probably Hephaestus. Love it. That's definitely my vibe. I don't know. I'm, I'm very handy. I know how to yeah. build stuff. Well, you're a mechanist. Yes. I would say that makes sense. Yeah. 
Do you have to fix stuff a lot at work? Do you find yourself having like a specific aptitude for fixing things? No, I have a specific aptitude for making sure things go out right the first time uh, because there's no second chance. Ooh. <laughs> and what, wait, what do you make? Like, I make parts for um, planes and space vehicles. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's nuts. So they have to oh. go out right the first time where I guess planes don't go in the, in the sky. Yes. All right. <laughs> cabin. Wait, what is that cabin? Cabin something. Nine. How did you remember that? Damn. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Robert coming to us from cabin nine. Oh, yay. Thank you for reminding us to do that. That was really fun. We all learned something. I'm just egotistical. No, you have to Good. take your That's space and advocate for yourself. As everyone will last recall, Percy and Annabeth just jumped into the heart of Tartarus with Bob and Small Bob, and we haven't seen the Argo 2 kids in a while because the last time we were on the ship, everyone got frozen, Piper woke up Festus, and Leo got kicked onto Ojigia. And we were with Leo and Ajigia for several chapters. Mm -hmm. But now we are finally back with the crew and we are in Jason's POV. So Jason picks us back up on the coast of North Africa at the castle of the Southern Sea God, who, um, of course, as Southern they all do. I'm sorry. Southern Wind God. Yes. Um, who, of course, goes by two names, as they all do, because this god is switching between their two aspects. The Greek aspect is notice. The and other the... one is Oster. Right, because Australia. Yes. I'm not sure that that's how you pronounce it, but that is the fun fact that the name for Australia comes from the name of the god of the South Wind because yes. that persona of the South Wind was known for being like really hot, blistery, the oh hot God, winds coming off of the northern coast of Africa, or really stormy and unpredictable and kind of like humid, like that summer rain kind mm -hmm. of thing. So the first line of this POV is Jason wasn't sure what to hope for, storm or fire, which is, of course, referring wow. to the wind god, but also... That's a reference. It's a double entendre. <laughs> or maybe double entendre, not quite, because that usually is referring to like a sexual joke, but it's got multiple meanings. There are multiple layers. And a really weird roundabout way it's a quadruple entendre but you'll have to get to the future series to understand why not this teaser also by the way announcement we probably are gonna have to do trials of apollo because of the nico book that's coming out so we'll work our way we'll work our way there you'll have to trudge through five books just to get to the part where they're like nico and will are going on the quest yeah i'm looking forward to it though yeah so jason wasn't sure what to hope for storm or fire meaning of course who is going to sacrifice themselves, like we talked it's, about in Piper's POV. It's, it's the prophecy. It's the prophecy, yeah. but it's also, he's apparently been having this daily, what's the word? Audience. Yes. He's been having a daily, thank, wow. <laughs> you're, you're so smart. He's been having this daily audience. Cora's not even looking at her outline, by the way. Is this how you always do this? I can see it over your shoulder. <laughs> I have to be like clutching the outline. It's like I'm reading the teleprompter and Carter is just like off the cuff. Wow. Jason's having a daily audience with the wind god, trying to beg the wind god to help them get back on their way because A, the ship is broken from the fight that they had with Keone and the Boreads, and, and B, Piper unleashed this like wind bomb in order to finish off the fight, which landed them here. That's why they're in Africa. They don't have Leo to fix the ship, so things have been going really slowly. Also, um, they apparently need permission from the Wind God. That's how it's framed. Jason keeps asking for permission to leave, which the Wind God has not given them at this point. The quote goes, Without Leo, none of them knew how to repair the more complicated parts of the ship, even with the help of Buford the Table and Festus, who was now permanently activated, thanks to Piper's charm speak, and none of them understood that. Hilarious. Way to call yourself out, Rick. 
Why not? Rick being like, I wrote myself into a corner. I don't want to explain it. We're done. <laughs> yeah, he's like, maybe that was a little bit of a stretch. We can just all agree. We can be on. chill. We can be cool. Jason and Piper chat a bit. Jason feels really guilty, as usual, that he wasn't there to... He was very helpless with Keone, but he's really proud and feeling really grateful for Piper. But this is also like very much the structure of the book because we rotate um, narrators. Basically, every section begins with somebody feeling bad because they were not the primary um, hoover Focus of the last, <laughs> the last encounter. That's exactly right. Jason specifically gets those kinds of chapters because it, if it's not his POV, he's knocked out. Yeah, the exactly. brick. Jason, at this point, has a conversation with Nico because I guess we have to. This is Jason's first POV since Jason's last POV when um, <laughs> Nico was um, outed. This Y'all is remember. the first one since the last one. It's so true. <laughs> Let me help my purred happily slay, okay, Erica? <laughs> this is the first time we've been in Jason's POV since Nico was outed. And I think it's relevant to say because our listeners might forget Whose POV was it when Nico was violently outed? Was it, it was Nico's? Jason's. It was not. It was Jason's. Just so we're all on the same page. <laughs> Should we read this conversation? 427, if you have a physical copy of the book, please enjoy this page-flipping ASMR that's going to get picked up on the mic. If you're a cool um, kid like me, you just go to 427 on your Kindle. you go to Kindle. Okay. split off. Does that mean I have to be Jason? I can be Jason if you uh, so desire. <laughs> Does somebody else want to be Jason? <laughs> Does somebody else want to be Jason? She asked in a in a call of three people. But yes, yeah, sure, why not? I can read the stage directions. <laughs> okay. Then you've got to convince the king of the South Wind to help. Nico's voice seethed with anger. I didn't come all this way, suffer so many humiliations. Jason had to make a conscious effort not to reach for his sword. Whenever Nico got angry, all of Jason's instincts screamed, Danger! Look, Nico. He said. I'm here if you want to talk about, you know, what happened in Croatia. I get how difficult. You don't get anything. Nobody's going to judge you. Nico's mouth twisted into a sneer. Really? That would be a first. I'm the son of Hades, Jason. I might as well be covered in blood or sewage the way people treat me. I don't belong anywhere. I'm not even from this century. But even that's not enough to set me apart. I've got to be, to be... Dude, it's not like you've got a choice. It's just who you are just who I am. The balcony trembled. Patterns shifted in the stone floor like bones coming to the surface. Easy for you to say. You're everybody's golden boy, the son of Jupiter. The only person who ever accepted me was Bianca. And she died! I didn't choose any of this. My father, my feelings. Jason tried to think of something to say. He wanted to be Nico's friend. He knew that was the only way to help, but Nico wasn't making it easy. He raised his hands in submission. Yeah, okay. But Nico... You do choose how to live your life. You want to trust somebody? Maybe take a risk and that I'm really your friend and I'll accept you. It's better than hiding. The floor cracked between them. The crevice hissed. The air around Nico shimmered with spectral light. Hiding? Nico's voice was deadly quiet. Jason's fingers itched to draw his sword. He'd met plenty of scary demigods, but he was starting to realize that Nico D'Angelo, as pale and gaunt as he looked, might be more than he could handle. Nevertheless, he held Nico's gaze. Yes, hiding. You run away from both camps. You're so afraid you'll get rejected that you won't even try. Maybe it's time you come out of the shadows. Just when the tension became unbearable, Nico dropped his eyes. The fissure closed in the balcony floor. The ghostly light faded. I'm going to honor my promise, Nico said, not much louder than a whisper. I'll take you to Epirus. I'll help you close the doors of death. Then that's it. I'm leaving. Forever. 
Behind them, the doors of the throne room blasted open with a gust of scorching air. All right. <laughs> Damn, okay. Um, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I was low-key worried Carter was going to stab me. <laughs> Carter was, like, maxing out our microphone. Um, that was great. Which is funny, because Nico is supposed to be speaking, like, less than a whisper. I'm sorry, okay? Sometimes I match the instructions, and sometimes I um, sometimes do... Okay, we all choice. remember the moment... We were all um, Tumblr slash uh, the part of Facebook that was screenshots of Tumblr um, when we um, relived uh, the Goblet of Fire film adaptation. Oh, yeah. Harry, did you put your name in the goblet? He asked quietly. Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? (laughs) That was a really good voice, Robert. As he's like fucking rushing up to Harry, he's like going to punch him in the face or something. (laughs) I really just want to shout out how Jason wants Nico to come out of the shadows. <laughs> Let's take sides. Did yeah, you I wrote that. I want us to take sides in this conversation. I feel like I just want to say that uh, that Jason's wrong. He shouldn't be saying this. I yeah. think that he is like not just um, irritating, but also just factually wrong, normatively wrong. I'm irritated, and also I think this is terrible advice. Lest we forget, this book, I don't know when it's technically supposed to be set. Do we know this? Is this... I guess we could time like it friend out. and or if, somebody else would know. Well... I like following the camp that... The camp? That um, The Lightning Thief starts in 2005 when it was published. Yes. Up to Last Olympian would be 2009. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lost Hero takes place winter 2009. These four books yeah. take place over the summer of 2010, as far as I... As yes. Far as I'm That's what I am mostly yeah. on the side of. Either way, 2010 or 2013, this is bad advice. He should not be giving this advice. It is silly. <laughs> if you are trapped in a boarding school co-work situation with people and you have no particular desire to share about yourself, don't. Literally don't. It's a risk. <laughs> it's a risk. If you don't want to take it, then don't take it. This is terrible advice. <laughs> Coming out is um, a Eurocentric myth. There's a scene in Doctor Who where <laughs> the doctor is trying to talk down an alien race from essentially just killing all the humans. Okay. And he's at a point where he's like winning the argument. They're having a verbal argument. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, just give up now. It'll be over. And the alien is like, you think they're going to forgive me after what I've done? You think they're going to let me go? And the doctor says something to the effect of, that's the, that's the thing with all you sniveling, crying children. You all think you're unforgivable. Well, here's a surprise. I forgive you. And the reason I thought about this is it sort of applies to how Jason and Nico are going right now. Nico is sort of in the, in the mindset of, I'm this thing. I'm not even from this century, you know. I'm how how could anyone accept me for who I am? And Jason is trying to be like, I'll accept you. Uh, the reason it works in Doctor Who is because I respect the Doctor. <laughs> that was an excellent setup for just like one long Jason attack punchline. <laughs> that wasn't even the intention. Like I understand what Jason is trying to do, but it really screams, you know ally in quotation marks mm-hmm. guys hot take though as of this pov i like jason and i'm gonna throw that out there as we move into this next this next section um i think he's getting better i think i would agree that he's getting better like like is a strong word if jason did this to anyone near me i would find him it's okay let's say he, that he really had good intentions he really wanted to help nico he wanted nico and like ultimately like yeah. more on a grander scheme of like coming out of the shadows he yeah. wanted nico to trust them like he wanted yes. Ni- he wanted to say i am trying to trust you and i want you to try to trust me yeah 
the charitable reading is that Nico is saying, like, I, I'm going to try and be, like, a homeless teenager. And Jason is saying, that's not necessary. Which, like, <laughs> good. Good for him. Yes. He should have said that. <laughs> anyway. But there are other ways to say that. You can understand Nico's pain, but then also, uh, spoilers, we get Nico's POV at some point. When you're in his brain, it just sounds like angsty 14-year-old trying to be like, I'm going to run away, mom. No one likes me. Yeah. So this leads us into Jason's audience with the God of the Southern Wind. Today, it's an Oster day, right? Yes. Yes. Roman form. So it's a storm day. and A no bones day. <laughs> this is a no bones day. <laughs> Storm day is no bones day, fire is bones day, and today is a no bones day, which is really bad because the quest really needs a bones day so that they can get up and going. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please just Google Noodle the Pug. I learned what this was today. (laughs) This is on page 433. For a god, unpredictability can be a strength. Then you are truly strong, Jason said. Thank you, yes. But the same is not true of demigods. Oster leaned forward, close enough so that Jason could smell rain-soaked fields and hot sandy beaches. You remind me of my own children, Jason Grace. You have blown from place to place. You are undecided. You change day to day. If you could turn the windsock, which way would it blow? Sweat trickled between Jason's shoulder blades. Excuse me? You said you need a navigator. You need my permission. I say you need neither. It is time to choose a direction. A wind that blows aimlessly is of no use to anyone. I don't... I don't understand. Except that even as he said it, he did understand. Nico had talked about not belonging anywhere. At least Nico was free of attachments. He could go wherever he chose. For months, Jason had been wrestling with the decision of where he belonged. He had always chafed against the traditions of Camp Jupiter. The power plays, the infighting. But Reyna was a good person. She needed his help. If he turned his back on her... Someone like Octavian could take over and ruin everything Jason did love about New Rome. Could he be so selfish as to leave? The very idea crushed him with guilt. But in his heart, he wanted to be at Camp Half-Blood. The months he'd spent there with Piper and Leo had felt more satisfying, more right than all his years at Camp Jupiter. Besides, at Camp Half-Blood, there was at least a chance he might meet his father someday. The gods hardly ever stopped by Camp Jupiter to say hello. Jason took a shaky breath. Yes, I know the direction I want to take. Okay, I have to say it took us uh, four 600 page books (laughs) to get here, but it's so satisfying that we have finally arrived at (laughs) such a piece and a chunk of internal life from Jason and him finally coming out and saying like, coming hashtag out of the shadows and saying that (laughs) he was only doing what he was doing because he didn't want to leave Reyna alone to be the only one who was doing it. And that yeah. he felt like if he wasn't doing it, that somebody worse was going to come in and take over. And it was his guilt and his really desire to protect people and the positives and things that was keeping him in this like weird false role that he didn't really identify with at Camp Jupiter. And that he just wants to be a cool kid hanging out at Cap Half-Blood without these weird responsibilities. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Camp Jupiter is militaristic, but at least you get free college out of it. Wait, that's how the United States wants to run. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot there. It's definitely like the most we've learned about Jason, which is in and of itself good. It's a book. We should know things about the characters who are important. But um, it would have been a lot better to know about this in his introductory book three books ago. But hey, you know. Yeah. 
I, I think that there's a way in which the payoff is better that we, because we've waited this long. The payoff is so satisfying. Especially in this idea that his conflict is also about choosing. It's not just about like choosing whether or not he's going to be Praetor or something. It's about choosing a camp. It's fundamentally th this uh, like choice between like godly legacies in coordination with like a choice about, you know, day-to-day -day lifestyle that is sort of unprecedented. Like this is not the kind of thing that we've seen any of the other characters in the book really talk about in this way like Percy and Annabeth have talked about maybe going to college in New Rome but it's not the same thing as I'm saying like oh like I've always felt wrong in the place the that I was. the traditions of the place I was raised. Yeah. yeah yeah it's cool that he's doing that at the risk of sounding like one of those people who needs to have characters be likable in order to like vibe with them and enjoy reading about them I am irritated <laughs> with the way that he frames this specifically him saying like oh if it wasn't me in charge then it obviously would have been somebody worse and like there was no one there to help Reyna if I was not doing it. Maybe it's true, but I'm kind of skeptical about this. That's just what he had been told though. It is what he's been told. I think it is reasonable to be patient with him and understand that like this is actually how he thinks and he thinks that he's doing a good thing and he's really trying his best. Yeah. But I feel like I can also at the same time be irritated and be like, Whoa. Yeah. why have you not in your life interrogated that more before that like other people might also be able to do this work and that another good place for you might just be saying like Octavian is a bad person we shouldn't pick Octavian but like also we could pick somebody else who does want to do the job and it's not terrible because presumably he's yeah he, I mean he's what he's 16 15 yeah it's a good time in life to have these types of realizations I like that it solidifies for me also the bond that he had with Reyna in a way that I have never really understood until now that they really were a partnership and that they relied on each other and that they really took care of everything and if it wasn't for Jason it would all fall to Reyna which is not something that he wanted. <laughs> this goes on to say Jason keeps asking questions and Auster says still expecting guidance from the wind gods a son of Jupiter should know better. Jason hesitated we're leaving Lord Auster today. The wind god grinned and spread his hands. At last, you announce your purpose. Then you have my permission to go, though you do not need it. And as I was reading that, I was like, truly, LOL, is this not every meeting you have with your mentor slash professor in college where you are like asking for advice and they're like, you know what to do all along. Now you can have my permission, but you never needed it. Like this Willy Wonka, Wizard of Oz ass. Woo, I technically have the power, although I have no knowledge to actually give you. You have to come up with everything yourself. Could have gone home the entire house. time, Dorothy. You had everything you needed all along. You just happened to also be paying $60,000 a year for me to <laughs> gaslight you. Yes. Okay. So immediately after this, we have gotten our permission that we always had all along, whatever. And then um, the question comes up of how they're going to um, transport themselves because the ship is broken. Jason says, quote, you're going to help us. Your venti can take the form of horses. You'll give us a team to pull the Argo too. They'll lead us wherever Leo is. I find this icky. I feel like this is incredibly, let me speak to your manager. Jason is a child of Jupiter and also keeps talking about it. Like this is the equivalent of someone being like, oh, it would be a shame if my daddy found out about like, blah, blah, blah. like that's hanging over this conversation. Except for that the South Wind God is literally like demanding that Jason start like demanding. Like he's like, Jason start using periods and not question marks. Really pushing for him to demand all yeah, of the shit. It's like, uh, there's the nuance there in the sense that this is in line with what Oster wants. And like mm -hmm. Oster probably could fight back if he really didn't want to. 
But I, I feel like the arc that we're being fed here is that out of all of the heroes on our team, Jason, blonde hair, blue eyed, son of Jupiter is the one who needs to be taught. Sometimes in life, you just need to assert that you deserve things and that you were entitled to things. And it's just subversive. tell people what's up. Rick was being super subversive. <laughs> Listen. Sometimes it's good to use daddy's name. Rick was like 100 steps ahead of everyone. He was like, just wait for when white men need to be told that they should be more demanding. This book will be for them. Oh, but... And then Jason, like, through the power of his newfound confidence, he changes this no bones day to a bones day. He switches Auster into Nautis by envisioning that hot, shimmering heat, the mirages on the Sahara. And then Nautis appears, no, I don't know how to say that. And he says, very good, Jason Grace. You are a son of Jupiter, yet you have chosen your own path, as all the greatest demigods have done before you. You cannot control your parentage, but you can choose your legacy. Your destiny grows clearer, Jason Grace. When the choice comes again, storm or fire, remember me and do not despair. I really like it. I like this for him. At this point in the text, I'm wondering, okay, well, now that Jason is like choosing Camp Half-Blood, is he going to be more or less likely to sacrifice himself? storm or fire, right? When that choice comes up. And I was like, wow, maybe he is going to be less likely to sacrifice himself because he sees this future for himself and he thinks maybe I don't have to take all the responsibility. But immediately, (laughs) immediately he says, he couldn't let his friend die for his sake. He could never live with the guilt. Of course he hoped he was wrong. He hoped they both came out of this quest okay. But if not, Jason had to be prepared. He would protect his friends and stop Gaia, whatever it took. So like that's a a self-sacrifice... Yep. Plan. Yep. So he's still planning on <laughs> sacrificing himself because <laughs> they're all very selfless. I, I just want to point out the, the the sort of parallel between Jason trying to imagine his future with Piper and Camp Half-Blood and the earlier chapter from the last book in the stables where Percy yes, was exactly. trying to envision his future with Annabeth at Camp Jupiter. Yes. Right leading into that quote, he's thinking about Piper and Hazel like practicing their sword fighting and thinking about how lucky he is to have her and what their future could be. But ultimately he's going to sacrifice himself. Which is the same thing Percy would say. Yeah. Let's pause on that. It's nice that Jason finally has some character growth, but like, what is the most important character growth? Piper and Hazel sword fighting. Yes! Piper has stolen a sword from one of the Boreans and is now using it to practice. Good for her. Yeah, should she have to do this? No, because her charm speak should have been honed earlier. She should have been given the proper tools in order to like turn her charm speak into a battle skill. But instead she's stressed. So she's putting that stress into just improving her her skills. Given where we are. Training with Hazel presuppose that the charm speak has all of these weird limitations that have been imposed upon it in the way that the books have been written yes she should learn to sword fight and she is good for her anyway the wind horses take them to malta which is not you know our final destination but is closer now to epirus epirus um, also because we are supposed to be looking for Leo at that point. That was Jason's request as opposed yeah. to directly to Aparos. Yeah, so Leo and the rest of the team are reunited in Malta, which is an island a nation. It looks like a floating city because the entire island is like full of buildings. But it's weird. Like the energy is weird. They pull up into the harbor and they're looking for Leo and Leo is like having Chilling. sad boy fall on the top of a hill by himself drinking coffee which leo has never done before and when they finally find him he's like oh hey guys tucks his hair behind his ear and sips his coffee quote from jason which he didn't even like waiting for them to find him that wasn't like leo at all and you know what leo remembers it all too well he, Girl. <laughs> he can picture it because he remembers it 
all too well, it being, of course, Calypso, and that he is now heartbroken because the one girl who has ever showed romantic interest in him is now unattainable, and he had to leave her to go save the world. Everyone's bummed because Leo's having a sad moment, and Jason is like, wow, Leo's humor was actually, like, really important to the group dynamic, so this is awkward, because now, like, Leo's in a bad mood, and Jason, like, deduces that Leo is heartbroken, and he literally, like, he reads it all in his face. He's like, Leo, gone? Leo was gone. Leo, heartbroken. Leo Island, it was Calypso. Leo Calypso, yeah. <laughs> Especially because someone someone else mentions Calypso, they're like, oh my god, isn't somebody from here? Like maybe Calypso, whoever that is, like are they maybe from here? And Leo's like, oh? Oh, oh who? That's... Who? I don't know her. He does remember. <laughs> he remembers it all too well. Yeah, Leo and Jason have this little nonverbal communication here where Leo's like, I'll tell you about it later. Like it's... Bro. Bro. Bro, I'm sad, bro, but don't ask me, bro. It's not now. Yeah. And with that, uh, Leo puts on a brave face, cracks some wimpy jokes, and it's time for them to get their butts to the doors of death. Yeah. Woo, we made it. One last thing I do want to point out real quick. Yes. Is that we talked about it briefly. Jason was able to deduce that Leo was heartbroken. The way he deduced it was he was like, oh, Leo's face looks the same as Nico's did back in Salona. I'm like, shut shut the fuck up, Jason. Shut up. Shut up. Um, you're trying, you're trying to compare apples and oranges. Sh- shut the fuck up, Jason. Literally shut up. Okay. Um, <laughs> with that, let's take a quick little break, and we'll be back for Percy's P.O.V. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back in Percy's point of view. We did last left off with them entering the heart of Tartarus, this gigantic chamber where we can see the doors of death at the end. Chamber, that's a good word because hearts have chambers. I know, yeah, I'm very, I'm so creative like that. (laughs) The first line in this Percy POV chapter is, Percy wasn't dead yet, but he was already tired of being a corpse. Mood. (laughs) Wow, that's comedy. That's that's writing. (laughs) Yeah. Percy and Annabeth are still disguised as zombies, sort of hiding behind Bob. We get some um, some humor. Do you want to read this line? That yeah, Bob is like, let's go. Death is close. And Annabeth is like, no, the doors of death are close. Let's watch the phrasing. Um, I wanted to flag this. This is um, another quotation from Percy's internal monologue. Whenever he'd fought monsters in the mortal world, Percy at least knew he was defending his home. That gave him courage, no matter how bad the odds were. Here, Percy was the invader. He didn't belong in this multitude of monsters any more than the Minotaur belonged in Penn Station at Rush Hour. First of all, why would Percy be in Penn Station at Rush Hour? He literally lives in New York City. That doesn't... I don't think that tracks. Is he trying to get to, like, Jersey or something? For what reason? Um, Percy's a born and raised New York. He's not going to go to Jersey of his own free will, even though he goes to Staten Island There we thank you. Let's say that. (laughs) Even though one of the short stories, he goes to Staten Island of his own quote-unquote free will, so... (laughs) The reason that I was pointing this out was not for the Penn Station reference, but for all of the ethical journey that Percy has been on through these few chapters, I think this is the closest we get to a reckoning with the idea of colonization, an outsider, of colonization, <laughs> of saying there are limits 
to the areas where I should have dominion and power and mm. where... Um, <laughs> I'm out of my jurisdiction. Yeah, to say that, like, even if these people don't like me and I don't like them, that they, like, deserve space. <laughs> I don't know if they totally follow through on this. We launch from this directly into this other section where Percy uses monsters as, you know, metaphors for archetypal forces of evil that will never die and regenerate constantly, which I don't know that that's necessarily compatible with this idea of monsters as sentient beings that deserve space and home and... Well, they are sentient beings that deserve space and home, but they are also fighting the bad fight. Yeah. And they represent his challenges and they are trying to murder his friends. I guess it's kind of like, like right an now, this Egyptian moment. framework almost, where they're like, this is like an eternal primordial force that is like an opposition to that which I'm trying to create, but also like it deserves to be. <laughs> Definitely, you could view a lot of the things Percy says in the original series, where he's like, you know, why do we follow what the gods do, blah, 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 as sort of half of the argument or half of the general idea. And now in this series, he's experienced the other half, which is like, why does all this violence have to happen? Why do these monsters yeah. have to exist? As a negative force on the world only destined to cause destruction and chaos like this whole system percy is realizing is just fucked up yeah and it's specifically when he sets eyes on garion from the triple g ranch where he's you just, read it? yeah let's go ahead seeing them assembled in tartarus percy felt as hopeless as the spirits in the river kakaitis percy felt as hopeless as the spirits in the river kakaitis so what if he was a hero? So what if he did something brave? Evil was always here, regenerating, bubbling under the surface. Percy was no more than a minor annoyance to these immortal beings. They just had to outweigh him. Someday, Percy's sons or daughters might have to face them all over again. Sons and daughters, that thought jarred him. As quickly as hopelessness had overtaken him, it disappeared. He glanced at Annabeth. She still looked like a misty corpse, but he imagined her true appearance— her gray eyes full of determination, her blonde hair pulled back in a bandana, her face weary and streaked with grime, but as beautiful as ever. Okay, maybe monsters kept coming back forever, but so did demigods. Generation after generation, Camp Half-Blood endured, and Camp Jupiter. Even separately, the two camps had survived. Now, if the Greeks and Romans could come together, they would be even stronger. There was still hope. He and Annabeth had come this far. The doors of death were almost within reach. Sons and daughters... A ridiculous thought. An awesome thought. Right there in the middle of Tartarus, Percy grinned. I feel that Rick has restated some version of this passage many times, but it still works. But this, it's the thesis. You need it here. <laughs> this is, we have talked especially towards the ending of the first book about this. Evil keeps coming back, but so does good. This is a multi-generational yeah. fight. You have to just keep trying. Festies, can I confess something? I just thought of another Doctor Who scene. Please, give it to the people. <laughs> There's a scene. Eric, you should really watch Doctor Who, by the way. It's fantastic. No. <laughs> Shant. Um. There's a scene where one of the companions is asking the Doctor. There's a whole reason why the Doctor is time traveling in this little blue box. And so one of the companions essentially asks him, why did you do it? And he has this whole monologue and big speech about how, by all accounts, evil should win evil is ruthless and doesn't play by the rules meanwhile good has to play by the rules and has to do what's right and has to be self-sacrificing that's what henry says in yeah the first season of once upon a time hey listen to our once upon a time podcast entering story bro <laughs> <laughs> generally the doctor is trying to be like the reason i'm on my adventure is to find out why good wins that's cool that's an interesting positive assessment of the state of the world <laughs> 
<laughs> good wins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that. That's what I was just thinking as you were saying that. Like, well, good is relative to who is the monster. Yeah. <laughs> so literally, Percy was like, you know, on Earth. I'd be okay with killing these monsters, but here I'm like, I feel the jeebies. Yeah, but he does take a moment to be like, is my side the good side? That's what we've been doing this whole time, right? Yeah. That's an important part of this. I I, I hate that I'm bringing this. Do you, um, do you all remember what the um, Wii menu is when you try and go home from a game? Uh, no. Wii menu reset. Was it like quit? When you press Give the up? home button, it'll say like, are you sure you want to go home? And in parentheses underneath, it says like, all changes not saved will be lost. Oh, God. And that, that, that is the uh, piece of wisdom that I'm reminded of in this moment Quarter, from Nintendo. What? <laughs> this, this is a good time to tell everyone we're recording like the day or two after the Wii's 15th year anniversary. So happy it's birthday. true. I'm thinking about the Wii a lot. Can you elaborate on the metaphor, Carter? I think that this is a thing that is commonly said um, on college campuses and organizing spaces because in general, most institutional forces that are entrenched, more likely than not, they are corporations, they are structures that are not human, that are built to survive beyond the lifetime of um, a movement that can be built of people that is necessarily going to be more disordered. I feel like what is being communicated here is that the evil is what will outlive you. That like necessarily um, the way that organizing and that equity focused work is structured is that the structures that are in opposition to you are not human. They mm-hmm. are these entrenched like a corporation is literally not immortal, human. It is yeah. an immortal thing. Yeah. An idea and a set of goals and purposes that will exist without and beyond any humans and will constantly be there to oppose you and your children and so on and so on Um, all you can do is lay is is lay the groundwork for what you can do in your lifetime and hope that the people coming after are going yeah i mean like it's saying like the idea that these things can outlast a human are not reasons to not fight them that you're yeah. supposed to take some sort of comfort and joy in the idea that your children will also be fighting to re-enshrine certain um, statutory rights yeah. the fact of like right struggles being cyclical and other equity related initiatives yeah. having to be fought generation after generation yeah. in the same way is yeah. i think something that is useful to think about Absolutely. like the idea of this asymmetric this in the like multi-generational yes. struggle i think is a very powerful metaphor which is what percy says like his yes. his enemies are reborn and yet he is mortal and that is that is unfair but if you think about the people coming after you yeah yes and it's yepetus <laughs> i like the note that was written here that like this is like a, a thor loki scene i'm like yeah it is yes it's yepetus's brother koyos the titan of the north and this is like Thor walking in and being like, Loki, my brother. Oh, such a good Thor voice. Holy shit. <laughs> Do I watch a lot of movies? <laughs> um, it's Chris Hemsworth running in and like patting Tom Hiddleston on the back. Rick says, Koyo sounded like he was reciting Shakespeare. That alone was enough to make Percy irritated. Do Period. It, do it, Rick. Period. Destroy Shakespeare. Are you going to lie to the listeners like this, Erica? <laughs> Don't even. <laughs> I love Shakespeare, but I am also in support of destroying the hegemony of Shakespeare and the grip that it has on us. I think that's fair. I think that's a nuanced take. That being said, put me in Romeo and Juliet. I'm not going to take that nuanced take. I'm going to say fuck Shakespeare. (laughs) Period. Full stop. Percy, I support you. (laughs) I'm just going to quote Iron Man from uh, The Avengers. Doth mother know you weareth her drapes? 
Death Mother, no, you wear with the drapes. Yeah, no, my toxic trait is that I am a Shakespeare girly, <laughs> unfortunately. It was, oh God, who was it? It was Fatal Flaw who tweeted that's like the idea of a fatal flaw is that there's only one thing wrong with me. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, if we look at it that way, then I'm fine. There are at least two things wrong with me. One of them is Shakespeare, and the other one is tall people. <laughs> no. There can be a lot of toxic things going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. This interchange is this is fascinating. So cool. yeah. Koyos is like, he bringing up a lot of old shit. Like, Bob is remembering a lot of things, but this is sort of almost like a crash course moment where Koyos fills Bob in on all of these things that Percy and Annabeth don't know about. Memories of instances of like physical violence that they have perpetuated. Bob is looking kind of ill at this, but this is a way for Bob to like fully get the scope of all of the things that happened as Yapetus so that there can be like a real informed choice that we get down the line between these aspects of, of his life and a reckoning for the things that he's responsible for as he regains his memory and his sense of what his old self used to be like. Remember, um, Steve, it's okay to cringe at who you were when you were in middle school as long as you love yourself now. Oh. The one thing that I want to shout out here is that Percy uses a simile about the Hubbard Glacier. <laughs> Because Percy went to the Hubbard Glacier two books ago. I cackled to myself as I was rereading this earlier today. And after all of this, Percy practices delightful manners. Afterwards, he's like, hey, Bob, are you good? Let's debrief after that really intense conversation you just conversation. had. Hey, buddy, you know, some of your past came back and literally punched you a little bit and talked to you in the face. How are we doing? You okay? Yeah. You're, you're not going to kill us, right? You, you don't, you don't want to go back to that old way, right? Bob's response is deeply iconic. Oh, Percy says, you okay, big guy? And Bob says, I do not know. In all this, what is the meaning of okay? Fair point, Percy thought. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Percy's in Tartar's like, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Percy checks in again, not just about whether or not this is okay, but whether or not Bob remembers all of these things. Percy says, do you remember Koyos, all that stuff he was talking about? Bob gripped his broom. When he told it, I remembered. He handed me my past like, like a spear, but I do not know if I should take it. Is it still mine if I do not want it? No, Annabeth said firmly. Bob, you're different now. You're better. Percy wished he could be as certain as Annabeth. He wished he could tell Bob with absolute confidence that he should forget about his past, but Percy understood Bob's confusion. He remembered the day he opened his eyes at the wolf house in California, his memory wiped clean by Hera. If someone had been waiting for Percy when he woke up, if they'd convinced Percy that his name was Bob and he was a friend of the Titans and the Giants, would Percy have believed it? Would he have felt betrayed once he found out his true identity? This is different, Percy told himself. We're the good guys. But were they? Percy had left Bob in Hades' palace at the mercy of a new master who hated him. Percy didn't feel like he had much right to tell Bob what to do now, even if their lives depended on it. I think you can choose, Bob, Percy ventured. Take the parts of Iapetus' past that you want to keep. Leave the rest. Your future is what matters. Future, Bob mused. That is a mortal concept. I am not meant to change, Percy friend. He gazed around him at the horde of monsters. We are the same. Forever. It got lost for me a little bit as we've been going through these chapters because we've had versions of this conversation every time Bob gets a little bit more memory back. Mm -hmm. But this has been, like, you gotta follow up pretty finely to, to recognize, like, at the beginning, like, Percy and Annabeth are more or less in lockstep about this. They're like, oh, Bob, like, I feel like you 
don't hate us and don't want to kill us, right? And Bob is like, yeah, sure. But this is the most direct iteration of this idea from Percy, like reckoning with Bob having all of this capacity now. Like Bob sounds different than he did in the earlier chapters. He has a memory for the things that he did before and after he met Percy, like in the early Titan days. And now with all of that, he's like, I don't know if I can change, but maybe I want to. Juicy. Delightful. Yeah. Choosing the person you want to be relative to your past, especially, I mean, it's nice that Percy talks about it, but we also just came off of Jason's chapter where the whole point was, who do you want to be in the future? Mm -hmm. But Bob is coming at this from like, no, I'm not a human. I don't think I'm meant to change, which is so delightful because we know reading this back that this is setting Bob up for sacrifice. Because he's thinking to himself, I don't change. Yeah. So the the best thing that I could do is to lay down my own future yeah. for your guys's. Because you're the good guys. I'm really struggling with, like, why do I enjoy this so much when I, like, find Luke's arc incredibly unsatisfying? Mm. Why is this redemption arc better? There are a lot of differences there. Bob is, like, recreating his personality from the ground up. Bob actually um, gets a redemption arc. <laughs> Bob actually gets a redemption arc and not just the perception of one from the author and several other people. I don't know if a redemption arc even, like, is the right framework. It's almost, like, not grafting onto human behavior and situations in some ways. Like, I feel like part of the fantasy is, like, this immovable primordial force just, like, realigning. Because Percy is the good guy. It's this fantasy that something that is primordially evil gets a clean slate. It's going to side with the good guys, and we are the good guys. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It's this idea that, like, waiting inside of even, like, a force that is beyond humanness has like, some sort of kernel of good that is waiting to be unleashed. That if we were in the to right wipe contact, the system clean and let it start over, that it would actually be good. It's part of the whole idea of yeah. hope for a better future. Like, oh, if we just re-elect different people to the next Congress or something, we'll like grow back from that because within every set of powers that currently occupies our world, there is some capacity for rebirth in a way that is generative and useful to us. I wonder, like, if I should feel guilty about the way that I feel, like, so viscerally, emotionally gutted and, like, rot by Bob's arc because it's, it's, like, too easy in a lot of ways. You know, like, some of it is, like, very, like, humanity gut-wrenching. Wow, people are making choices about themselves and their futures. But, like, part of Bob's arc is also, like, involving this impossible set of circumstances that allow this force that, as he says, is, like, really not human in a lot of ways to realign in a way that supports us against all of these odds to deliver a really dramatically fulfilling ending for the heroes you know i don't know is this making any sense robert speak <laughs> uh, listen i'm about to ruin the vibe by just referencing wreck it ralph let us all How ruin the vibes by quoting wreck it ralph, ralph? <laughs> That's just the quote of the episode. I'm going to ruin the vibe by quoting Wreck-It Ralph. Where, no, because I I feel like Carter articulated it in a significantly smarter way than I'm about to, where I'm just going to compare Bob's arc throughout this entire book to a line from Wreck-It Ralph where it's like, you are a bad guy, but you are not bad guy. <laughs> Wait. It's been a while since I've watched and seen that masterpiece that is Wreck-It Ralph, so if we could loop back on that one. This is one of the villain support group characters, right? Yeah, the idea is just supposed to be, like, to apply that to the context of Iapetus, or Bob, he was a villain, he was an evil titan who did all these bad things, and I was wiped clean, he doesn't have to be the bad guy anymore. He was a bad Mm -hmm. guy, but he's not a bad guy. That's what Bob's arc is 
specifically in this part of the book, but also throughout the entire book, where he's like, this is who I was, this is who I am, this is who I'll be, especially with how Bob is also like, yeah, the, the concept of a future doesn't apply to me, I don't change. Yeah. But even then, he's he's still going to be like, I'm going to sacrifice myself for y'all. Yeah. I have no idea how we'll edit down this conversation, <laughs> but as far as why this arc hits so hard, I want to say that it's also has a lot to do with the idea of somebody older mm-hmm. who takes care of you sacrificing themselves. Yeah. I think that that is also a really, yeah. it's like having a parental figure in your life sacrifice their time for mm-hmm. you yeah. that is really gut-wrenching especially when you're at an age where you're getting older and you're realizing how much the older people in your life have done for you mm-hmm. and that they would give it all up to give you the chance of doing something better yeah. that- parental sacrifice combined with this idea of like also getting the parental figure to be like I'm i have on- screwed everything up before you have convinced me I am on your side. I must atone for all of the ways in which I am. Yeah. Yeah. The the idea that, like, I'm going to give up the sun and the stars so that you can have a chance to see it and spread that for other people, that is so... It makes you feel guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As somebody who's fatal flaw, or not fatal flaw, but who's, like, (laughs) has to go to therapy because of my internalized guilt, um, (laughs) that is... That's your one fatal flaw, remember. The one thing that's wrong with me... (laughs) (laughs) The one thing that's wrong with me. The singular thing. We come out of this conversation about Bob changing his ways to the actual doors of death. Like, it's down to business. The doors of death are identical to the elevator doors that lead you to Mount Olympus, which if and it's that also an elevator. isn't the best callback in this whole book, I think that takes yeah. the cake for my favorite because it is so goosebump inducing. It's ex- I think it was Caitlin who was talking about the perverse of what we know and how Tartarus is just Manhattan perverted and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And like, it plays to your fears. The final nail in the coffin is this, mm-hmm. is the corruption of like the doors to Olympus. Yeah. The way that we travel up to the gods, the monsters are traveling up to the mortal world. We're not so different. Like, especially because it takes us all the way back to the first book, the lightning thief and this moment of like revelation and power where Percy is like not quite on his knees but is taken down by the majesty of the gods and <laughs> all of their power and now we're fighting this war that we're not even sure we want to fight. <laughs> it's a reminder of perversion but also of power. The scale is really important as we are about to scale up again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also the quote is the doors of death seemed like a personal insult designed to remind him of everything he couldn't have. Which is, again, back to the angst of it all. The idea that the universe and the forces of evil are literally conspiring personally against Percy Jackson. Yes. Angsty. (laughs) We get to, like, the real meat and potatoes, I guess, of the conflict, which is someone has to stay behind and hold the Mm -hmm. button that closes and sends the elevator up for 12 minutes. Yeah. Why 12 minutes? Why, Why 12 Olympians? <laughs> Wasn't there, I think it was in Lightning Thief that Chiron gave an explanation for why the number 12 is something about like power. It was kind of circular. I remember that too. It was basically just that it was like culturally important. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So someone's going to have to push the button. Someone's going to have to push the button. And also, lest Defend we forget, the there's an entire army there. So um, they're going to have to push the button and uh, not die while the button is being pushed. Pretty much immediately, Bob is like, I will push the button. <laughs> Period. Bob, we can't ask you to do that. You want to go through the doors too. You want to see the sky again and the stars and... I would like that. But someone must push the button. And once the chains are cut, my brethren will fight to stop your passage. 
they will not want the doors to disappear. Which also, lest we forget to mention, this is also what's going to happen. We're supposed to cut the change, keeping the doors of death there so that they will go somewhere else. I guess that is the natural state of them, that they're supposed to magically yeah. be the transferred doors, to different yeah. locations the doors are and supposed only Thanatos knows. The doors are not supposed to be in one place. That was part of the whole problem, that they had chained the doors of death down mm-hmm. so that death was no longer working. Yes. It's the simplicity of Bob saying, yeah, I'd like to do that, but I can't. Rick doesn't stress that he's saying it in some like heartbroken way or some exaggerated form of emotion. He just says it plain Mm -hmm. and simply, which I think hits more, like hits harder. It's Mm -hmm. a matter of fact, we just had this whole conversation about your responsibility as like a leader. And it just makes me think about Jason saying, it was my job to help Reyna. Because if I didn't do it, like who's going to do it? Somebody has to do it. Someone must push the button. (sighs) But also Percy is thinking in his head, like the math is still not mathing. Because you can't just have someone pressing the button. You also need someone defending against the army that is still going to be there to try and get you to take your hand off at some point during the 12 whole minutes that you have to hold down. And because of Percy's freaking fatal flaw of thinking that he is the shit and he can do everything, the cement settled in Percy's stomach. He had always suspected how this would end. He would have to stay behind. While Bob fended off the army, Percy would hold the elevator button and make sure Annabeth got to safety. Somehow, he had to convince her to go without him. As long as she was safe and the doors disappeared, he could die knowing he'd done something right. Percy? Annabeth stared at him, a suspicious edge in her voice. She was too smart. If he met her eyes, she would know exactly what he was thinking. I'm sorry, Percybeth? Percybeth? It's a lot. Especially because at this moment, it really does not seem like there's another way. The math is not, yeah. The math, the math is, is not, not mathing. mathing. There's also two titans guarding the doors, which on their own are more powerful than the team that we have assembled. Yeah, so now Krios is now talking with Hyperion, who we will remember from callback to the last Olympian. He gets turned into the maple tree. Yes, which Bob <laughs> brings up and says, didn't Percy Jackson turn you into a tree? Uh, no, Burn. Grover okay, Underwood did. Whoa! Whoa! Let them know. Let them Whoa. know. <laughs> what do we have to say about this conversation? It's as you would expect. Hyperion and Krios are kind of assholes. They're misogynistic. They're classist. They're very ambitious and irritating. But they um, have been relegated by Gaia to this position of clerical administrative work. They are um, managing the order of groups and then holding a button down. What the hell is there? I'm so curious as to what the system is to categorize all these monsters because they go from A22 to double red. It's just funny. In the midst of this heartbreak, in this (laughs) horrible sacrificial moment, we get the true humor of American (laughs) bureaucracy and a ridiculous office place where nothing makes sense and you have to hold down the button. Oh my god. (laughs) And these giant primordial evil reincarnated beings are like, A22, take the ticket. It's real, because of course it would be that way. The only way that evil is this successful is because it has uh, bureaucracies. (laughs) Bureaucracy will never die. Bureaucracy is the primordial evil. It would be the shittiest thing in the world to, like, be in Tartarus, be, like, in line to go up to the doors of death, and, like, you draw the little ticket from the little ticket thing, and it's, like, J purple, and they call, like, A22. I'm like, okay, when do I go? What does this mean? Yeah, it's very the TVA, no? It's very (laughs) Miss Minutes, the TVA. Oh, God. Sure, sure, sure. There's just a little TV in the corner playing, like, you are on your way up to the mortal world. You, as the monster, are now tasked with the goal of killing as many mortals as you can. That's exactly, it's like Beetlejuice as well. 
the office place once you get to the netherworld and they're like take a ticket sit down and they've been waiting for three thousand years <laughs> or, or you know like the categorization of monsters inc yeah. sure 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 it's all of those things mixed together yeah this is not rick did not invent like bureaucracy <laughs> and terror <laughs> yeah <laughs> rick did not invent monsters inc i feel like we should highlight some of this dialogue specifically hyperion is trying to talk down to bob and the way that he does that is by saying quote you were always conflicted about that killing weren't you the soft titan of the west soft as the sunset why our parents named you piercer i will never know more like whimper like just so we're clear here this is in reference to the murder of uh uranus and they're saying like yapatas was always more unwilling to do that and this is supposed to be seen as a bad thing i don't know how to interpret this supposed to say that his nature was always inherently kind of good yeah and i don't i just think it's like worth thinking about Mm -hmm. and flagging yapatas or i guess bob we should say at some point it starts to start getting cute with hyperion and the main way that he says this (laughs) is quote at least a janitor's work is honest. I clean up after others. I leave the place better than I found it. But you, you do not care what messes you make. You followed Kronos blindly. Now you take orders from Gaia. That's a read. That's mm-hmm. filthy. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. It's not about not getting into fights. It's about thinking critically about who you're fighting for. Yeah. Yes. I, I wish you guys didn't bring up the whole paternal figure thing. Because now my dad was a custodial worker for many years. So now I'm just like, oh, shit. Mm. Hey, but this is my dad. Oh, oh no. <laughs> now he's going to get left behind his like, arteries. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> that's when I was like, oh, shit. Persmith are my parents. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is all sort of a diversion, though. This is just a little bit of interesting Bob backstory and information about how he has grown and how he has always been. Before Bob is just sort of like, okay, I'll relieve you. We are going with the plan. I am creating a diversion so that Percy and Annabeth can cut the chains and, you know, get the show on the road. Bob is about to um, relieve them. As he's relieving them, like, Hyperion and Creo start to argue with each other because they both want to be relieved. You know, they're getting kind of petty. This is the distraction that they want. Courtney, take your break. This is page 472. Before he could strike the chains, a high-pitched whine pierced his ears, like the sound of an incoming rocket. Percy just had time to think, "Uh uh-oh. Then an explosion rocked the hillside. A wave of heat knocked Percy backward. Dark shrapnel rippled through Creos and Hyperion, shredding them as easily as wood in a chipper. Stinking pit. A hollow voice rolled across the plain, shaking the warm, fleshy ground. Bob staggered to his feet. Somehow the explosion hadn't touched him. He swept his spear in front of him, trying to locate the source of the voice. Small Bob, the kitten, crawled into his coveralls. Annabeth landed about 20 feet from the doors. When she stood, Percy was so relieved she was alive, it took him a moment to realize... She looked like herself. The death mist had evaporated. Wait, do, do we keep going? He looked at you his own You want to read to the end. His disguise was gone too. Titans, the voice said disdainfully. Lesser beings, imperfect and weak. In front of the doors of death, the air darkened and solidified. The being who appeared was so massive, radiating such pure malevolence that Percy wanted to crawl away and hide. Instead, he forced his eyes to trace the god's form, starting with his black iron boots, each one as large as a coffin. His legs were covered in dark greaves, his flesh all thick purple muscle like the ground. His armored skirt was made from thousands of blackened twisted bones woven together like chain links and clasped in place by a belt of interlocking monstrous arms. On the surface of the warrior's breastplate, murky faces appeared and submerged, giants, cyclopses, gorgons, and dragons, all pressing against the armor as if trying to get out. The warrior's arms were bare, muscular, purple, and glistening his hands as large as crane scoops. Worst of all was his head, 
a helmet of twisted rock and metal with no particular shape, just jagged spikes and pulsing patches of magma. His entire face was a whirlpool, an inward spiral of darkness. As Percy watched, the last particles of Titan essence from Hyperion and Creos were vacuumed into the warrior's maw. Somehow Percy found his voice. Tartarus. The warrior made a sound like a mountain cracking in half. Wait, no. The warrior made a sound like mountain cracking in half. There's no second article there. There's a typo, yes. A roar or a laugh, Percy couldn't be sure. This form is only a small manifestation of my power, said the god, but it is enough to deal with you. I do not interfere lightly, little demigod. It is beneath me to deal with gnats such as yourself. Uh, Percy's legs threatened to collapse under him. Don't you, you know, go to any trouble. <laughs> you have proven surprisingly resilient, Tartar said. You have come too far. I can no longer stand by and watch you progress. Tartarus spread his arms throughout the valley. Thousands of monsters wailed and roared, clashing their weapons and bellowing in triumph. The doors of death shuddered in their chains. Be honored, little demigod, said the god of the pit. Even the Olympians were never worthy of my personal attention. But you will be destroyed by Tartarus himself. What? Rick was like... (laughs) That's epic! How could I make it worse? How can I make it worse? How can we deliver a new level of impossible to solve problem? When they were already, the math was already not mathing. He did not have to throw this in. (laughs) We could have just had an epic battle with Creos and Hyperion in which they were losing because of course they were losing. And also the army of monsters already present. But no. Tartarus himself has to materialize for the first time. Ever. Really, though? There's no precedent for this, I believe, in Greek mythology. (laughs) Really. (laughs) Everything Rick is saying about the way Tartarus looks, this is just, like, some weird combination of, like... In my mind, I'm picturing um, Tyranitar, the Pokemon, and also (laughs) Thanos, the um, Marvel character, (laughs) just fused into one. Mm -hmm. No? Just, like, okay, there's sections of the body where, like, this looks like Tyranitar. The fleshy purple muscle is definitely giving Thanos. It's giving Thanos... The like way they describe the feet, but also like the way that they describe a part of Tartarus's physical form as being like rocks and magma. Rick yes. really just said, "Welcome to the boss level." Yeah, this is the final boss. Not only was like, did I throw Percy and Annabeth into Tartarus? They now have to fight the literal, never before seen manifestation of Tartarus himself. <laughs> it was also giving me like the Celestials in the way that they're animated in Eternals because yes. they have the like brewing magma. Yes. And they're just so massive that you can't comprehend their size. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot. Damn. Literally not the Olympians not even being worthy of Tartarus and then little Mr. Percy. Yeah, it's kind of giving... <laughs> this is what should happen in the ninth book in your series. It's giving me For your protagonist to just... <laughs> if it were any other series, I feel like I would be upset. I would be like, this is too much. Like, no one needed this. No. But like, no, actually, this is earned. As I was rereading this, I like had to pause in my note-taking and just like flip through the pages and be like like oh yes this is real this is tense i don't know if like the writing of the physical description is necessarily groundbreaking but the entrance where like literally it comes out of nowhere i forgot i was like it happens at some point but the fact that it happens like because mid-argument he has to just eviscerate two titans for fun as a show of force was something i had forgotten in this rereading it's like oh damn this is real. They just died at his pre- like him coming out and being like, "I am here" is enough to kill those two titans. 
we, vacuumed their essence into his maw like Jesus. Into his <laughs> maws. Not his mouth. His maw. He doesn't have a face. <laughs> it's also the his way... His face is a mountain and magma and misshapen metal. <laughs> oh, God. Which is weird. I, I remember it's... I don't, I don't remember if they're about to say it in the next POV or if they've already said it. But I think they've made it very clear that, like, Tartarus is in every way, quote-unquote, stronger than Gaia. Apparently, well, allegedly, something like that. Well, there's a whole there's a whole mythology about it from another podcast, podcast of Poseidon, where where they talk about how what Gaia and Tartarus were sort of made at the same time, and they're supposed to mm-hmm. sort of be equals. But mm-hmm. also, Rick is trying to put it into his own you know canon that Tartarus is like the bigger deal to deal with at this moment that no one has ever dealt with Tartarus ever. And Gaia has never, Gaia has never been fully awake. There's also very that, yeah. The Gaia that we get is never a fully awakened. Yeah, it even Tardis' final form or like full form because, like, I yeah. think they said it at some point, like they could not even begin to conceive the idea of a final form if they were presented with it. Yeah, yeah. it does make sense as writing as well as to be like this is not the final form because, of course, that would be incredibly unsatisfying. Of course, there's also multiple more book series. Yeah. Things need to keep getting bigger. Yeah. I'm pleased, though. Well, in case you didn't remember, that is where the chapter ends. Um. <laughs> I hated that so much. I was reading it, and I'm like, oh my god, what happens next? And then it's like, Frank. I'm like, fuck you, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care about you right now. I want to know what happens to Percy and Annabeth. And it's a big moment for Frank. No, we've got a lot to talk about. It is a big moment for Frank that you guys will talk about in the next episode. But so, fuck you, Frank. I don't care right now. <laughs> Well, that brings us to a little question for you, Robert. Where are we at on feeling if Percy Beth is the greatest love story ever told? It definitely is. For me, a, a big moment, just in this, these couple of chapters that like stick out, was when Percy would not meet Annabeth's eyes because he knew she would figure out his plan mm-hmm. and would stop it. And I'm like, oh, so in sync, so in love, yeah. literally going through hell together. You're almost out of there. Ugh, the best. They yeah. basically mind read each other. <laughs> we did not, I'm surprised at us, we did not talk that much about like the Percibeth of specifically Percy's monologue about generational trauma and inheritances of movement building. Yeah. Where he, we... like, he keeps saying the phrase like sons and daughters. I'm like, what? He literally, he's being literal about it. He like is referring to his children with Annabeth as a part of. <laughs> I can't talk about it because I will literally burst into flames and yeah. like, disintegrate. It's so cute. The idea of Persebeth as, like, not just, like, going through hell together, but also being, like, ancestors. Siring the next great generation of demigods to fight the good fight? They are my peers. They are children that I'm looking upon and encouraging to grow, but also they are the parents. They They are, are like, our ancestors. (laughs) They are millennials, unfortunately. If Percy and Annabeth (laughs) existed in real life, they'd be 28 years old. That's why when I say that Annabeth was into Harry Potter and people are like, no, she's not. Literally, she was. Literally. Come on. She was like, I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> Before we go, we all want to promote an event that we're going to be doing on December 21st. It's going to be at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It'll be on Fran's YouTube channel, A Healthy Dose of Fran, and all of the links will be shared on our social media. They're shared right now. You can go check it out. We are going to be doing a watch-along of the Lightning Thief, parenthesis 2010, close parenthesis, film (laughs) um, for fun because we thought it'd be great to gather everyone during the holidays with all of the podcasters. So there's going to be people there from Fatal Flaw, Podcast of Poseidon, Best Damn Camp, Robert will be there, will be there, Damn Snack Bar, Half the report, etc. It keeps going on. Camp Half Bot through the mist. And we are also now 
during the event, after the event, we're asking that you donate if you are able to therednation.org slash support. You can visit their page. The Red Nation is an awesome organization. They're a coalition of native and non-native activists, educators, students, and community organizers that advocate for native liberation. They also have a podcast. It's called The Red Nation Podcast. We will link it in our show notes. So go check them out and support them in this season of giving. And we'll hope to see you there for that live stream. Thanks so much, Robert. Oh, man. Who who needs therapy when I can just show up to uh, a... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I still need therapy. I should, I should call my therapist now and be like, hey, I know, no, it's, ten, I know it's 1030 at night, <laughs> but I have conflicting emotions. You were like, I need to talk about how Bob is my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and she's going to be like, what? Who? <laughs> Listen, I try and explain to her the whole like podcasting and the meme making. And she's like, as long as it makes you happy. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> we will see everyone next week for some Frank. Bye. Bye-bye.